We spoke last week about fear and what it does to a church leader, and then how dangerous that can be for a church. We said as churches decline, as many have for over 50 years in the West, and when the gospel is mocked and when established normal Christian morality is seen as an evil to be driven out of workplaces and out of the public square, well, then Christian leaders can get discouraged and fearful. We're in 1 Samuel to learn from King Saul what kind of king the people of God needs. And last week, Saul was afraid. So he began to disobey God and his excuses. We saw they're so human, so normal that we felt huge sympathy. Look up to 13 verse 11. He saw that the men were scattering. He expected the Philistine army to come and attack. He wanted the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. It's what was I supposed to do? Surely it's better to disobey God in a minor way than face challenges with a smaller and smaller church assembly. It just sounds very plausible. But Samuel called it foolish thinking. Verse 13, you have done a foolish thing. Disobedience, even in the small things, is not the answer. That is not what we need. And last week, so last week was was what we do not need. And we're in 1 Samuel to learn what kind of king the people of God need. So not like Saul last week, but more like this week. This week, we see a glimpse of what we do need and should want. We see it in Saul's son, Jonathan. We catch just a glimpse of the kind of king that would help us. And the key piece of his thinking is in 14 verse 6. This is the the big theological idea this week. It's Jonathan talking to his young armour bearer says, come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. And now here it is. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. We need a king who believes that. Saul had 3,000 men in 13 verse 2. He had 10 or 100 times more than that in 13 verse 4 when the whole nation was summoned. But then his men began to scatter. So he gave up on God's ability to save. And we were sympathetic. And Saul looks reasonable. But lift the bonnet and you can see what is driving this bus. Saul's thinking is that God can only save if there are enough of us or if we are strong enough or talented enough. Ultimately, it's all about him and his army, self-focused, self-glorifying. He's the same as Eli's sons earlier in the book. But there is another way. There could be a king who thinks the saving is up to God, that nothing at all can hinder God from saving, whether there's thousands of you or only very few, which is just as well. Because that is the situation Israel is in at the start of chapter 14. Worse than um, the English church situation, certainly. And the enemy is all over their territory, 13 verse 17 and 18. And the Philistines, they've removed all possibility of an Israelite defence. 13 verse 19. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel. Otherwise, the Hebrews will make swords or spears. And this is invasion, annexation, demilitarization, and subjugation. Uh, Verse 21, if you want to eat, 
Well, you have to pay Philistine prices even for your basic farming tools. So how big is the army now? Well, it was, it was 600 people in verse 15, but that's not the full story. Look at verse 22. So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. The, uh, the army of the people of God is two. Could God really save his people with only that few? 14 verse 6, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Surely that means a few thousand, not just two or one. It's the perfect answer, isn't it, to Saul's fear. He said, what was I supposed to do when the army was scattering? Well, you're supposed to know it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you have your army with you because God can save without your army. And so in Jonathan, the king's son, we see glimpses of the perfect king God has given us. Glimpses of Jesus who trusted God to save God's way, even alone even betrayed and dying, who knew fully and thoroughly that God cannot be hindered from saving. And I think some of this may feel a bit strange to us this week. This is Jesus as the victorious super soldier. But the route to victory is humility, faithfulness and obedience. It's the only route to victory if everything depends on God, not human beings. So we've got two points today, one for each half of the story. Point one, God saves through a humble king. God saves through a humble king. That's 14 verses 1 to 23. So I want to tell you a happy story for um, five or six minutes. It's going to be uncomplicated. It's a story of a hero who saves the day. So follow it through. Verse one, here's Jonathan. Uh, his dad is in his 30s, so he's probably in you know, an older youth group age. And he's on patrol with his wingman. And without telling his dad, they, they extend the patrol right up to the enemy outpost. Verse 4, verse 5, the, the tactical situation is not promising. There's cliffs to the right of them, cliffs to the left of them, and heavily armoured Philistines on top of them. And no part of Jonathan wonders whether he might be strong enough to take them. This is ridiculous, humanly speaking. The only reason to consider it is because God might want to do it. Verse six, let us go over why perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. We should notice that he doesn't know. I mean, his dad should know. That's what verse two and verse three are about. The king of Israel in good standing with the God of Israel, equipped with the high priest of Israel, has access to the kind of real time battlefield intelligence that would make a NATO AWACS commander weep. But Jonathan can't ask them because he knows they don't trust God. He's on his own. And the armour bearer says, go ahead. I am with you heart and soul. And in today's passage, he is us, I think. Uh, we're not Jonathan or Saul in these chapters. We're not the king. We're the people of God, hoping for a king who really trusts God. And when you find him, I am with you, heart and soul, even into the cliffs of Bozes and Senate. And so they, um, they let the enemy see them and Jonathan sets up a 50-50 to see if God will give him a sign. 
And the Bible is actually quite negative about doing that in general. And, and you and I were not the king of Israel and our normal choices in life. They're not about whether the people of God get exterminated. In fact, most of our decisions, they're much more about obedience to what God has said, much more like Saul last week. But on this day, God is kind and gives him the sign. Uh, he says, if they invite us up, if they let us climb up without shooting arrows at us, in other words, then we'll take that verse 10 as a sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So they show themselves. The Philistines call them maggots and say, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. And there's no military chance that the Philistines will lose. Two men in single file up a cliff face with one sword between them. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. Why? The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. What do you think? Is this the arrogance of youth? No. And this is faithful, humble trust in God. In fact, Saul's careful, cautious, reasoned disobedience last week, that was the arrogance of fearful age and experience. This is humble trust that God can do this with or without us. And then um, Jonathan acts like some kind of I don't know, ghost recon rock climbing action man from the SAS. It's hands and feet up the rock face, which is not an ideal way to begin a sword fight. And the two of them, they burst into the fortress like, well, like the salvation of God. Here in London, we don't really celebrate soldiers at the moment. But when your country is invaded, you feel differently. Uh, the, the raiding parties in 13, they weren't respecting human rights. The, the no blacksmith rule in verse 19 of 13, that's not a UN peacekeeping mission. Israel is going through the full horror of invasion and oppression until one teenager climbed a cliff and, verse 14, killed 20 men on a small hilltop. It was 20 heavily armoured professional soldiers against two teenagers with one sword between them with loads of warning when they're out of breath from the climb. Can you see it? Can you see Jonathan, the way an Israelite would have seen this, leaping over the parapet, drawing his sword, sweeping his way in, cutting and punching and dodging and leaping. And God has given them into his hands. But surely you think just one small victory against thousands and thousands of enemies. So what? But... Nothing can hinder God from saving, whether by many or by few. And one is enough. Verse 15, there is panic sent by God and Saul begins to get some very strange reports. The, the Philistines are running away. They're melting. Verse 16. And Saul has no idea why. He has to count the whole army to find out that one young man is missing. And he is, I think, a bit ambiguous in verse 18. Is this good? He's waiting for God's instructions. Or is this stubborn fearfulness in the face of the totally blindingly obvious? But finally, Saul gets the idea. He assembles his men for battle, verse 20. And not that there is much of a battle to have. The, the Philistines are so scared and confused that they are killing each other. Remember, Saul only had two swords. God had thousands. Just they were all strapped to Philistines at the time. Not a problem for God. He can use them to kill the Philistines. And verse 21, we learn a whole bunch of Hebrews had signed up with the Philistine army. They've all got swords. Suddenly Saul's army is growing. And verse 22, all the Israelites who ran away, when they hear the Philistines are running away in their turn, suddenly they find their courage and join in. See what might have happened if Saul had just obeyed God. 
He was worried that his army was getting smaller, so he disobeyed to help God out. But if God wants to save, in in three hours he's put together an army of thousands and victory is underway. Verse 23, on that day the Lord saved Israel. Okay, so that is the, the simple story. It's about how God saved the people. Jonathan is a hero. We all go home cheering. But I'm afraid that's not the whole story. Look ahead to verse 46. See, this day, that was the opportunity to finish the Philistines forever. But something went wrong. Verse 46, something that made Saul stop pursuing the Philistines. So they withdrew to their own land. Or um, look at verse 52. It's part of the summary of Saul's reign. It's a very normal thing to say about a reasonably good king. Says all the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines and endless military conscription. Just normal things to say about a king who depends on the strength and numbers of his army. But it didn't need to be that way. It could have all ended on that day. And we need to understand why it didn't. Jonathan, he is here to represent the king we need. And he is here to contrast with his father, who is the king they actually have. So point one, God saves through a humble king. But point two, a king like Saul is not safe. Do you remember back in in 1027, the question was, how can this fellow save us? Well, he has. Saul has done some saving. The Ammonites were defeated and today the Philistines are driven beyond the borders. Saul, it seems, can save at least when God is merciful, and uh, particularly when his son gets involved. But it's not enough to do some saving. The king of Israel needs also to be safe. Uh, People need to stay saved. And in particular, they need to be safe from the king himself. And of all the people in Israel, you might think would be safe, safe as safe could be from Saul. How about Jonathan, the king's son? the super soldier, hero of the day. But look at verse 44, where Saul is calling on oath for the death of his son. How did that happen? Well, it happens through a whole load of mess. And unlike last week, I think at times we can't say for certain that Saul disobeys God. There's just a sequence of bad judgment calls. I think each one on its own, you might cut Saul some slack. But as a whole, we see a really troubling pattern because each time Saul is about making himself look good and then putting the blame onto other people. And Jonathan calls it for us in verse 29. My father has made trouble for the country. Saul is supposed to be making um, some salvation, but instead he's making some trouble or or verse 24, some distress. So look at verse 24. It starts with an oath. Um, After finally deciding it's okay to climb over the barricades and join in, it seems that Paul made a bit of a speech. Saul, sorry, made a bit of a speech. He said, cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I've avenged myself on my enemies. Now, what do you think? good or bad. Uh, It's fairly standard for a a general on the eve of battle. Um, He's even maybe in sort of faithful territory. Let's make a vow to God. He's fasting. But it it also sounds a bit superstitious. Remember, he hadn't asked God what to do. Certainly God didn't tell him to fast. He's not obeying. He's making it up. 
And it's, well, it's a bit pompous, isn't it? It's like he's projecting the image of a strong, brave king when really he has left the actual bravery to his teenage son. And certainly it's very much about him, isn't it? Before I have avenged myself on my enemies, like this was all one personal insult to his vanity. And it's certainly a bit of a risk, isn't it? Announcing a supernatural curse on any one of his squaddies who can't hold himself back from snacking during a day of hard physical exercise. But the amazing thing is that his army obeys Saul, hungry, tired, and verse 26, faced with free sugar, no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. See, the king stands between the people and God, so if the king makes a stupid religious oath, the people think they'd better obey. Certainly, they are better at obeying Saul than Saul was at obeying God last week. So maybe we'll, we'll be okay. Maybe danger averted. But, but, verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard. Of course he hadn't heard. He was killing Philistines while Saul was still hiding in his tent. And he was busy pursuing a whole army while Saul was making his pompous speech. So Jonathan sees the honey and he eats. Oh no. And verse 28, one of the soldiers tells him what he's done. And in verse 29, Jonathan doesn't seem at all bothered by the curse. He seems to understand that God won't hold this against him, that um, breaking a, a stupid man-made rule that you didn't even know about, that's not going to get you cursed by God. He's mainly worried about what a stupid military decision this was. He can see this is a 40-year mistake. This is the, the one chance to destroy the Philistine war machine. Um, they have the opportunity to, to resupply from the enemy's own logistics train and push home the advantage. What a day to call a fast. My father has made trouble for the country. And he's right. Though actually he's not right about how bad it will get. Uh, verse 31, the men are exhausted and at evening the, um, the stupid oath time limit expires. So the men turn to the plunder and they're no longer thinking straight. There are sheep and there are cattle, so they just kill them and start eating. It's understandable, but this time it is sinful. They ate them together with the blood, which is against God's law. And someone tells Saul, look, the men are sinning. And here Saul does something okay, I think. He acts to stop the sin. He organises for the meat to be processed properly and he says, do not sin against the Lord." Even when he's doing the right thing, there's some uncomfortable notes in the symphony. You have broken faith, he says, verse 33, which might mean broken faith with God. But it's a bit blamey, don't we think? And there's no sense he thinks that his own stupid decisions have led to this. There's no sense of sorry. There's no sympathy with them at all. And actually, he may be blaming them completely. He may mean you traitors to me, to Saul. And I think the narrator wants us to compare types of disobedience and we'll learn something about Saul. So last week, Saul disobeyed a command of God and he thought God wouldn't mind because he had some excuses. This week, the people disobey a command of God with some good, reasonable excuses. But Saul is on their case at once and he's passing all the blame down the hill to the people under his command. 
Then there's one more. Because someone else has disobeyed a command today, um, not a command of God's, but a command of Saul. Jonathan has disobeyed a command of Saul. And Jonathan also has an excellent excuse. He didn't know. He was too busy saving the day. And it was a stupid, totally disastrous command anyway. Surely Saul will accept Jonathan's excuses. It's certainly what he wanted God to do for him last week. Or not. Um, And the remainder of the chapter is just very, very awkward and sad. Uh, Saul decides to go on pursuing, but this time God won't give him the green light. So Saul sets up an investigation to find out what the problem is. And he's still posturing, I think, verse 39. Surely as the Lord who rescued Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son, Jonathan, he must die. It's the kind of thing rulers say beating their chests and stamping their feet. But the people know. And so this is not going to end well. Um, But he's the king. So not one of them said a word. They just allow it to play out. And there's a, a drawn out set of requests to God, which leaves in the end, Jonathan standing on his own, identified as the guilty party. Verse 43. Tell me what you have done. I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. I think the author leaves us to decide on the tone of voice. Is Jonathan angry? Is it ironic? Is the sadness? Is the fear? But all around the edge of the story, we're screaming, show some mercy. He's nothing like as bad as you were in chapter 13, and nobody even talked about killing you. But Saul's ego is engaged. His projected image of himself as the great king, the big man, Like probably there is some compensation going on. Saul hasn't been brave and he hasn't been wise. So his image is the last thing he has left to cling on to. Possibly even me, there's there's some jealousy of the boy who has been a better king than him that day. Certainly he won't tolerate any disobedience of himself. The king who has set himself up as a rival to God's. And that finally is the point where his army steps in and says, no, um, it's not going to happen. You're not going to kill Jonathan. In discussions during the week, um, Tasha, who's on staff here, pointed out this is like the film The Death of Stalin. As the dictator does crazy things and people in fear have to decide when to speak out. And um, Carfoon pointed out that the people here, they save Saul from himself, uh, save him from the worst possible kind of murder and from throwing away his best soldier and his most popular member of the royal family. And the people here, they line up with Jonathan and with Jonathan's belief in God. Save him because he delivered us, verse 45, but also he did this today with God's help. This is God's man, leave him alone. And it's a bit like last week and the week before. It's awkward, it's tragic. And then everyone goes home saved but only temporarily and not safe with a king who will even kill someone like Jonathan. Now I think there are applications here for us that we need to hear and again there are some applications for church leaders. We need leaders who don't just look like kings but actually trust God. The truth is the Lord cannot be hindered from saving 
which means whatever situation we're in, it's fine. England is fine in gospel terms. Uh, if there's been a decline in church attendance and, and people seem not to be becoming Christians, well, that must be because we are under judgment. It cannot be because God is, is too small now. You can't stop God saving. England is fine. But we leaders may not be. If the, the small numbers make us fearful and disobedient. Um, don't misunderstand me. 1 Samuel is not a book that says churches would be better off without leaders uh, or that we would all be better off not coming to church anymore. We have the Internet now. Uh, the whole book is a search for the king. And the, the New Testament is not an individualistic book and it's not an anarchistic tract. God gathers us into assemblies, into churches and calls people to what uh, 1 Timothy calls the noble task of leading. But the New Testament also warns us about people like Saul. We are not safe with people who love themselves rather than God. And Saul's fear, his vengeance, his self-absorption, his posturing, his total demand to be obeyed, his poor judgment and his failure to lead and obey God himself. That is what makes him dangerous. And those are all human failings that may be present as temptations in many, many leaders, maybe all leaders. And there's a much more complicated question about exactly when you remove someone from leadership. And I, I don't think the application here is that every Bible study leader listening who's ever felt afraid should resign. Saul is seriously across all of the lines by this point and has further to travel. I think as well as an application, there's an interesting question about when the people should step in and stand up to a leader. Um, Jonathan, he was right, I think, to take initiative without talking to his father. Um, you can't let unfaithful leadership hold back the salvation work of God. And the people, I think certainly they were right to stop the execution of Jonathan in verse 45. But in between, there is the mess. Um, what do we make of their silence in verse 39 or um, earlier when Saul's making the oath? Where are the limits of um, allowing a leader to lead as opposed to when you step in and challenge? I think that could be a discussion, couldn't it? Something to get going on over coffee later. But here's what I think is the main application and what is clear throughout this story. We are learning about the king we do need. We need someone like Jonathan, not someone like Saul. They're very nearly opposites here. And it is the character of Jesus that we are seeing in the contrast. Jesus, he is the humble king who saves. And I'm praying that our love for Jesus can be re-engaged by seeing the, the emotions of the people to their super soldier, Jonathan. Uh, as they stand up to his murderous father and say, this is the one who saved us. Again, I said, certainly in England, we're not very comfortable with Jesus as soldier. I think we're too familiar with the, um, the imperial legacy of powerful armies doing terrible things in our name. But the Bible returns to this image of our saviour again and again. The victorious rescuing saviour. And if, if we think we are too sophisticated in the 21st century to need the emotional pull of a warrior rescuer, I think we're doing our faith and our heart a great disservice. 
Um, it's been fun watching 21st century people try to celebrate the Queen's Jubilee. Uh, they've always sort of had to keep catching themselves. There's been joy and celebration and then immediately, oh, quick, pull um, a thin veil of irony over. And of course, we don't really love the Queen or of course, we don't really feel happier when we get together in a big crowd and wave flags and sing anthems. Which is to ignore how God has made human beings. I think this is one of the areas that C.S. Lewis called true myth. There is a reason why every good story is dominated by the noble, brave, single-handed, rescuing soldier prince, that the myth of the hero echoes right down in the heart. That space, it exists in our longings and Jesus fills it entirely and more than we could ever expect, impossibly, fully sacrificing himself to death and then rises in victory miraculously and he is gentle and he is non-violent and yet he defeats all the enemies forever and the danger is we decide that is too good to be true too much like the myth of what we all want to really be fact when actually in Jesus the myth is historically and fully true and if we won't have Jesus in the, the glorious warrior king space, well, then we open our hearts to fill that void with something else. Uh, someone I know is a, an A-level history teacher, and we're on the same internet forums where there are discussions about leadership at sea and in danger. And every now and then someone will say something stupid like, oh, I think nowadays no one wants to be led anymore. And Mark will say, the lesson of history is that human beings want to be ruled and ruled hard. Uh, populism, nationalism, they've none of them gone away. They're on the up in many countries. The human heart needs a king to believe in. And only Christians have one who can really fill that space and fill it safely. Jesus, who is like Jonathan in chapter 14 in his character and in the consequences for his people, no stupid oaths and posturing. Only the commands of God, he's dependable, who trusts God even against overwhelming and terrifying dangers, who is brave, who is like the ghost recon rock climbing action man, who wins the total victory, not just pushing sin and Satan and death back to the borders, but defeating them to the uttermost. And he does it by self-sacrifice, not self-glorification. And he does it by obeying God at the cost of his life. And his sword is the word of his mouth, calling men and women to give him their love and their loyalty and their anthem singing, flag waving human hearts. And to say with the armor bearer, I am with you heart and soul, heart and soul. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we confess that you are the king that we need that only in you do we see this trust of God, this obedience, this perfect salvation and this love and care for us as the good shepherd. So Lord Jesus, we commit to you that we are with you heart and soul, even in our fears and our troubles and in all the accusations of Satan and the opposition around us. We are with you heart and soul. Amen.